<clears throat> all right, let me pray. Father, we're grateful for all the blessings that are in our lives, the ones that we know about, have prayed about, and you have revealed um, your goodness to us. Some that we're not aware of, we even kind of take for granted. Some of the blessings in our lives we even feel a little bit entitled to. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to always have grateful hearts and to recognize all the goodnesses uh, that you put into our lives, from great friendships to um, good food to uh, healthy bodies. There are just so many ways, Father, that we're blessed, and we just thank you for every aspect of it, knowing that every good and perfect gift uh, comes from you, the Father of lights. And we're grateful today, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to talk about economic culture, a uh, culture that determines large parts of culture. And uh, maybe at this point in your life, you don't feel qualified to talk too much about economic culture. Um, you, I don't know if you have a good economy personally or a <laughs> poor economy personally. Um, my wife and I feel like the less we made, the more we had um, looking back from this point of our life. But there is definitely a culture around economy and a culture that is economy. They are very interactive together. So let's look at some questions together. The first one is, is there such a thing as faith in economic culture, not Christian faith, like a trust in, in the economy, a trust in, in the economic culture? If so, what does that kind of trust in a cultural economy or that kind of faith in a cultural economy uh, encompass? So turn and talk about it with your buddies. Hopefully one of you has had enough coffee to be into it today. Is there faith in an economic culture? Yeah, of course. That is, I believe, uh, I believe it's supposed to be Play-Doh. Plato? <laughs> Play-Doh. Yeah, you probably would have been better off. There's no liking or disliking. It just is. What he said just is. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't dislike Plato. Like all of those different schools at the time. I was like, I didn't even know that was a thing. 
<laughs> I know. There are so many different things that you don't know because I think when we think about Greek and Roman culture, besides what you learn in the Bible, we think of mythologies right away instead of like an actual life lived on the ground. So we think of like emperors and that kind of thing, but we think of Plato, he wrote these amazing things, but no, he had a school and there were followers and he was like Big school. A Lots of followers. Yeah, and he predates Jesus by like 300 years. And yeah, uh, Jesus was not the first one with disciples, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, let's come back together, see what we got. Boy, that was really loud, sorry. Hey! Lots of voice today. Haven't talked much. All right, what do we know? Is there, a I asked a closed-ended, uh, closed question, so you can just say, yep, or nope. But I would like to know what does it encompass? Is there faith in an economic culture? Yes. What does it encompass? I would say uh, no for now. I think back in the day, like maybe three or four presidents ago, there was a strong one. But starting with the Vietnam War and everything after that, to the drop of um, Wall Street, to even today with our debt, like there isn't one. I think when we think of eco our economy, we think of the bunt of a joke instead of. <laughs> Yeah, it's hardly worth the paper it's uh, printed on. However, it will still buy you fudge, yeah. <laughs> or a coffee, or a car, or pay your rent. So it does have some power. Yeah, but. Yeah, for a li more than one night, hopefully, for a whole pig. I mean, hopefully. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you know, and obviously within a culture, this kind of leads into the second question, there was some agreement, so there had to be some agreement, that my pig is worth a certain number of nights in your, in your shelter, um, that there had to be some trade-off, some understood trade-off, and the dollar bill becomes that understood currency. It becomes what's common between us. So if my pig is worth 200 of these and your shelter, I can get a whole month for 200 of these, then that's what my pig should equal. So it just kind of leveled out the barter system. But that is indeed what's behind what's going on. Absolutely. So there is a faith in that consistency. What other faiths are there in economic culture? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly true. You have a faith that there's a future, whether it's a job or a house or a vocation, a career. You have a, a plan that there will still be a way for you to earn a living in the future. So do I. I mean, I'm not saying just you. I mean, we all have this, this faith that there's a future, that our economy somehow guarantees a future, which is that a good faith? Is that a well-founded faith. I mean, in my lifetime, it's a well-founded faith. Um, in my dad's lifetime, not so much. I mean, they, he was a post-depression child, not a baby, but a post-depression child. And um, my grandparents were depression adults. And so they learned what it meant that the next day you could go to the same place and do the same thing, but you would not get the same thing back which means you probably can't pay for where you live, which means you probably can't pay for what you're driving, which means you probably can't pay for, pay for, pay for. So in my experience, it's a good faith, in my experience. In my knowledge of history, 
a little rocky. You have more to say? And if it does, which it has in my, I invest regularly, and it has in my adult life. Uh, the, the, trust the system that they have because it can go too far, I believe, before they kind of just stop the whole trading. The trading, right. Day. The selling, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so there are safeguards. And I'm still young enough, believe it or not, that there's a hope for me that what I've invested will continue to grow. I mean, over periodicals, my faith is well-founded that my invested money in the stock market and in bonds will continue to grow. And it has. Not as fast as real estate. So this is another faith that economy will grow, that the dollar will retain its strength in the world market, and that our market will retain a strength in the world market. So there, there is a faith that there is growth. My house, I have a faith that it will grow in value. Though right after we bought it, it just went I mean, like, literally three months after we bought our house, it was worth $40,000 less than we paid for it. $40,000. It's like, I hope we don't have to sell it really soon because I can't afford what I've lost in pretend money. It's pretend money, but what I've lost in my house. That's terrible. So what other faiths do we have in our economy? If you touch your nose, I'm going to think you're raising your hand and I'm going to call on you. No, I'm kidding. You guys are such very quiet little hand raisers. Like, <laughs> Yep. Did you say something that we... What did you say something that we maybe base our life around that? Yeah. It definitely comes with culture. I mean, there's no way that we can trade goods if we don't come to some agreement as to what our goods are commonly worth. There's just no, no way to do that. But if I could say you know, more of what you're, you're saying, yeah, there, there is a plan. I don't think anybody sitting here, including myself, plans that in 10 years you will ha be in the exact same place. That in 10 years you'll have the same net worth or the same holdings or the same position in society. My guess is that for most of you, there is, if you have a 10-year plan, it's not this. That you're still paying by the month for a place to live and hoping that your parents have, you know, a couple hundred bucks every now and then that they can help you with, or that you're driving the same thing. Anybody here want to be driving the same thing in 10 years that they're driving now? I, I do, <laughs> yeah. I'm fine with mine, but... Um, yeah, but for the most part, we have kind of this vision of what's next for us. And that is a faith in the economy, that there is a next thing, that there's a progression in this, and that my life will continue to get better. At least in my experience watching people, and again, my, I, I work in a, in a part of town that's an aging community. I have a lot of aged people in our congregation 
who have lived very, very well. I mean, in our congregation, we have more than our share of millionaires um, in a congregation like ours. It's a white collar, upper middle class. Um, there are several people within our congregation that could underwrite our yearly budget, which is about $1.2 million without even thinking about it. And that's weird to know that, like when you walk in and sit next to somebody, they don't look rich, <laughs> but they are. And um, you know, when you think about uh, the way that they've lived their lives and the plans that they've had, it's interesting because you reach a certain point where you feel like I have enough of whatever stuff or money or savings or whatever. And then it starts feeling like I have too much. It starts feeling, people literally start trying to get rid of stuff and give stuff away. Uh, this one old fella in another church who wasn't rich, he was not a white collar kind of guy, but he said, it's so interesting, Greg, I spent my whole life trying to get as much stuff as I could, and I feel like I'm gonna spend the last third of my life trying to get rid of it all before I die. Which when I look at my parents' garage, that's exactly how I feel. <laughs> it's like, I said to my dad, can we please clean your garage now? as opposed to after you're gone. He said, no, I want to wait. <laughs> I would rather be gone and let you guys have to deal with it. No, no, please don't do that. So we've already hedged over into this a little bit, which is first an economy or a culture and why would you say so? So let's keep this one open because we've kind of crossed over into that a little bit already, which is first. An economy definitely is part of what creates a culture. Is this a chicken and an egg question? Like, you just kind of need both together. You have to have a, an agreed upon value between you together. Um, especially if we're not all doing the same thing. Like if we all grow corn, and you have corn, I have corn, we have no need to trade because all we have is all the same stuff, then we, we probably don't need um, an agreed upon value. But that's not typically what happens. Typically you have artisans, you have agrarians, you have um, leaders, you have um, laborers. I mean, typically you have lots of different components in an economy and you have to determine a value for people's work, people's time. Uh, Oregon's right in the middle of this right now as a state we're trying to decide whether we're gonna raise the minimum wage. How many of you are in favor of that, raising the minimum wage? How many of you are not in favor of it? Yeah, that's really, really interesting. We're not gonna talk about it. I was just interested to know. Um, and that's a very interesting question because what are we promising with a minimum wage? What are we promising somebody's minimum effort is worth? That's what it comes out in my mind, is what is the most minimum skilled job worth in our, in our state? But I will say, I agree that it should be up to the states to determine it. And if you don't like a state's minimum wage, Move, yeah, exactly right. Or if you don't like a state's opinion of capital punishment, get, get out of Dodge. You don't have to stay there. That's the nice thing that there's 50 of us states, so you can go a lot of different places. <laughs> you don't have to stay in a state that uh, makes rules and laws that you don't like. Again, I'm tipping my hand on political culture, sorry. So what might the kingdom of God have to do with Wall Street? Turn and talk with each other and then come back to me. What might the kingdom of God have to do with Wall Street? And of course, by Wall Street, I don't mean the place. I mean American economy. Ready to go.
yeah, is there a place that American economy and the kingdom of God necessarily have to interact or can we just avoid each other? And if there are places that we interact, where is that? All right, let's get our brains back together and see what we came up with. So how do the kingdom of God and Americans or America's economy interact? Where do they have to connect or do they have to connect? Can they just be separate? Yes, ma'am. A Bible costs money. I mean, even though the Gideons raise it, they still need money. They give the Bibles away, they still need money. So even for the word of God as a physical apparatus of communicating the truth of the kingdom, costs money. Yeah. Other places that there's an interaction? Or does anybody disagree with that? There's a lot I don't know. So, yeah, it could be. I don't know. Were you going to say something?
Well, having a strong family and being successful and proud of to be more stuck in our own ways and not want to freak out because it's okay to be in stuck. And um, I think it's, it's good to have a strong economy, but that we also need to, to remember that in like third world countries where their economy is depressed, yeah, there is definitely a sense like where I live in or work in Lake Oswego, Southwest Portland, where money masks the real needs. Like poverty makes the needs very, very clear and primal and obvious. Where like people in my neighborhood don't need food, they don't need coats, they don't need shoes, they don't need drinking water, they don't need really much of anything that money can buy. But that doesn't mean that they are not spiritually impoverished. And part of the problem in an economy in a kingdom is determining what the needs are and how to meet the needs. Uh, inner city work or third world developing country work is pretty fun and easy because you can just go in and you feel great. Like we go in and build, you know, 20 water filters and place them in families' homes, which is the best part. You get to go in their home and pray for their house and you put their water filter in their house. That's amazing. But there's nobody in my neighborhood that needs that. I mean, if I moved a water filter into most of the families in my neighborhood, they'd be like, you can't put that in my house. You know, this is like the nicest thing in a house in Coyolate, whereas this would be like backyard side of the house chunk of cement in most of the people in, in our church. So yeah, there's like this disparity, but it doesn't mean that there isn't a spiritual poverty around us and deep, deep needs that need to be addressed. They're just not as easy. They're not as easy to detect and see. Yeah? Um, I would say for some people, like Christians, the kingdom of God is in competition with Wall Street, and what is their priority? You mean what actually, how they spend their time? Yeah, from a, a really important guy said that, you know. <laughs> no, this really, really important guy said you can't have two masters, and he used money as the other master. He could have used art or food, or he used money as the other master. So, all right, let's get into it and talk about the pseudo-god, which is really, really obvious. I think you could come up with this one very, very easily. Um, and the, the reading that you had for today, the Peter Drucker, who is one of the world... America's leading economists, for sure. Um, uh, these are outtakes from the reading that I gave you. He's not a Christian. He's not writing from a Christian perspective. He's writing purely as an economist, um, one of the best. So the first pseudo-god is consumerism. That's the belief that the highest end of society is materialistic, to get as much as you can, uh, to consume 
as much as you can possibly consume or to hold to have as much as you can have. It's amazing to me how much people have um, that they don't need. It's amazing to me how much I have that I don't need, um, but seemed to need at the moment of purchase. But when I think about how much is in my house or how much house I have or how much you store it, facilities are growing in our, in our society. I mean, you store it is out of sight, out of mind. If you put something and you store it, rarely will you ever see it. So I don't even understand why people have that. But this idea of consumerism, that what I have makes my life better. That's the heart of consumerism. Not who I am, but what I have. And you've probably had that feeling, like a day that like, is really bad or a, a few days, it's just really, really bad, and you just need something to feel better. And what you feel like is, ah, I just want to go buy something. You know, if I, just, if I just went and bought something, I would be happy for a little bit. Uh, and that's kind of the internal heart of consumerism, is if something would make me feel better right now, ice cream, or a new sweater, or new cowboy boots, who knows? I mean, something would make me feel better right now if I, if I had it. And I, has anybody ever done that in here? I have. Has anybody ever done that in here? Where, and it's just, this, the, it's just the internal heart of consumerism. Did the thing make you happy? Sure, for a little bit. Yeah, it made you happy. And then you put it in your used store it and forgot about it, right? It just disappears. And the other big one is, is um, well, let me just finish this idea. Consumerism is a Peter Drucker quote, is good for the economy, and a healthy economy is good for the rest of the culture. And that's the idea behind a, a consumer-driven economy, that the more that we utilize, the more jobs we create. So if I think a new shirt would make me feel better, I'm actually helping the shirt industry and the shirt makers when I buy a shirt. So, um, and that's the idea behind our economy, a production economy, um, and the idea behind consumerism. Second is capitalism, which is, and you can read it for yourself as you're filling in. But as I said a couple days ago, we live in a free market, capitalistic society. That's what we have. And there are other societies that are not free. It's not a free market. It's not capitalistic. Um, which most of the world is hedging that way because we still have the highest quality of life of any country. Um, so a lot of economies are copying a free market capitalism. It's difficult if you're not a free democracy. Free democracy and free market capitalism kind of go together. But capitalism is an economic system in which the means of production and distribution are privately or corporately owned and development is proportionate to the accumul uh, accumulation and reinvestment of profits gained in a free market. Now the things that have changed and why he's talking about this, Peter Drucker's talking about this in his book, is in a modern era, most of the economy was privately owned. In our economy, in a postmodern our economy, it is now corporately owned. And the corporations are not owned by individuals. There could be a major stockholder who owns like a majority stock or a voting level of stock in a company, which is usually about 20%. Um, 
predominantly, it's corporations that own the most, the money, <laughs> that have all the money. And it's not big executives. I mean, there are big and wealthy and ridiculously wealthy executives. But the Rockefellers and those kind of families are a bygone era that just doesn't happen anymore, where one family holds on to an immense amount of wealth. Now what a family holds on to is an immense amount of popularity, like keeping up with the? Yeah, there's a sense that we have that, that they live the lifestyle that everybody else wants uh, in terms of being rich and famous and having you know, overworked lips. But the idea is that the, the power is not in wealth, the power is now in popularity. The power now is in how often you're seen, how often you're heard, how often you are visible to the public. So, and it's not just corporations like Alcoa or a big company like that. It's also the financial industry itself. There's a lot of wealth in wealth management because of the pay, the premiums that go with wealth management. So I have friends that are in like retirement management programs for big companies. So they'll go to Alcoa and offer their 13,000 employees a retirement package that they invest. And every time they move the money around, they make a premium on the investment. Their company does. So there's a lot of money just in the world of money. Does that make sense to you? Like it's a self-perpetuating reality. And the biggest funds are literally retirement funds. The biggest funds, the biggest stockholders in our stock market are retirement funds. Their investment portfolios held by a financial company who are getting constant reimbursement for their moving the money around. And that is part of capitalism. A social system based on the principle of individual rights, in particular property rights, which has now changed to corporate rights. Okay. So that's what I'm trying to say in the name of Peter Drucker. But you know what capitalism is, and you know what works about it and what doesn't work about it. What's good about capitalism? Yeah. Yeah, or at all. I mean, there are some economies, there's no hope that you're going to move ahead. You just try to survive every day. What else is good about it? If you think retirement's good, you can only do that in a capitalistic society, if you think that's good. Uh, a lot of people are living a lot longer now and are not finding retirement everything that they thought it was <laughs> because there's so much meaning in being a purposeful, contributing part of society that retirement seems to mitigate against. But if you like retirement, that is only possible in a capitalistic society. If you're an inventor and you want to get something out there and spread around your really good idea, or a book writer or a songwriter, the best way, the best, econ uh, best economic vehicle you have for that is capitalism. Because in America, in a free market, free market, anybody in here could sell anything that they want to sell. And if you have a really great idea, or a really great song, or a really great book, um, you can sell it. Even if you have a really great blog, you can sell advertisement and make a very happy, comfortable living. Um, so there are ways in a free market that you individually could sustain your own life by what you are able to do versus a, like a communist economy 
where you are told what part of the society you will play, and this is what they'll give you for it. <laughs> that's not free market capitalism, that's just socialism. That's just the sense that um, the society's gonna tell you what niche you will fit. So, I mean, there's good things about that. Of all the possible economies that I could be raised in, I would like to be in a free market, capitalistic economy. Even though it's a god, even though it's a pseudo-god, even though it can become an end in itself, it's still the most freeing, opportunistic uh, place for, for individuals and organizations. I mean, church in America thrives financially because there are no fetters, there are no boundaries of what a church can do. Um, you guys know the name Francis Chan? Yeah. He speaks here, right? No, you wish. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I know. I know. I used to, too. But I'm no Francis Chan. Um, so anyway, I don't know if you have heard this, but he took a year off from his church, which was growing a huge church, and left it with his staff and elders. And when he left, there was a plan to build. And he wanted a year to kind of decide the direction of his life in ministry. And the way I heard it, and this is second hand, maybe third hand, maybe 12th hand, I don't know. But the way I heard it was that the church together raised about $20 million for a new building. And they actually had a building committee put together. They actually purchased the land and had like the cool model built of what the building would look like, you know, like this cardboard thing that, that it would look like. Um, and Francis came back from his sabbatical and he just said, I'm not the pastor of that church. That's not what God has called me to. I have this vision that we don't own anything as a church, but that our ministry is in, is decentralized, that we are the house churches of this area. So they kept the property and made an amphitheater out, gave away the 20 mil. <laughs> and um, they still meet in like this amphitheater because they're in Southern California, so they can do it you know, fairly regularly. Once in a while, Francis talks, but most of their church is now decentralized from a local place. And I think that's a beautiful model. I mean, it's a great model. You have to achieve a certain status before you can do that, right? I, you can't start from scratch and say, with no notoriety, no books, no central personality, I'm gonna start a church that meets all throughout our county in different communities and be in charge of it. You can't do that. But once you have a centralized ministry, you can decentralize it. And there are a lot of churches that are doing that right now. And we're free to do that. We can do that. Francis, Francis Chan still gets paid. Our church is going through his book, Multiply, right now. So we've paid him quite a bit in the last little bit. <laughs> the good thing about writing books. What are some of the theological pitfalls? This is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. Because this is, as you've pointed out, several of you pointed out very well, this is the issue, is when church as an organization becomes spellbound on finances becomes focused on um, material blessing, becomes focused on what we can get, what we can have. When the church itself becomes bent on consumerism or the church itself becomes bent on, on prosperity, that's, that's a problem. And that's exactly what's happened because of free market capitalism, because this is the preoccupation, excuse me, preoccupation with our society. So prosperity theology is the the idea, the theology, that the blessing of God is realized materially. And material lack, here's the big deal, is caused by a lack of faith or at worst, sin. That you don't have because you don't believe. 
you don't have it because you don't believe it strongly enough. Or what you think of as faith is not really faith at all. And again, America is the only place that this could possibly exist. <laughs> it's the only place that we are um, fooled enough by charisma, um, duped enough by financial promises, that we would actually concoct a theology that is this obvious and this wretched. Um, but it is what most people think of. If you talk about Christianity to unchurched people, especially your generation, generally what they think is that you believe this, that God, that your faith in God is so that you'll have a better life. Because that's what we're preoccupied with in America is better life. That's, that's our society. That's our economic value. And prosperity theology is a, an American evangelical invention. Something we came up with. Can anybody here name a personality of prosperity theology? Oh, Joel Osteen. Why Joel Osteen? Uh, like half of his sermons, or even like in one of the beginnings, he was like, he was, sorry, he said. <laughs> <laughs> I understand the confusion. No. <laughs> I was remembering his wife speak for a second. Um, he said something like, uh, like we prayed for this lady the other day that she would have more faith so that we she can get this boat that she's been wanting for a long time. But it wasn't like a, like prayed, ask God for a blessing. It was like she deserves this, and we're gonna make sure she deserves this because of her level. Like she, had, he was like, she has to reach a certain level of faith. And then he, like that's just one example. Of like a lot, like almost all of his sermons, he, like you don't hear about the cross or anything like that. You hear most of his sermons are saying like God's gonna bless you if you give this amount of money today. Like you're called to be giving this amount of money to bless God today. God's gonna bless you, and you're gonna see it in your life this week. Kind of like one of those like. God is a chain letter. Um, yeah, the nice thing about Joel Osteen, and I don't disagree with anything he said, the nice thing is he has now um, worked for his church for free because he's made enough money on his best-selling books that the church doesn't have to pay him anymore, which is really, really cool because he could make, you know, untold amounts of money, you know, and he's limited that, which I, I really respect that. Any other personalities you can think of that are popular in this genre? One other thing I would say about um, Lakewood Baptist, I think it is, um, it's in a long line of not just prosperity theology, but it's called like the power of positive thinking. Have you guys heard that phrase before? Um, it started before I was born with a guy named Norman Vincent Peale and uh, his ministry that we now have these little guidepost magazines. Have you ever seen those like in your church lobby? These little guidepost magazines come from that idea. And, um, you know, he, he wrote books and spread this, this power of positive thinking that you don't have it because you don't think that you're going to get it. And if you think positive thoughts or faith, they're kind of the same thing. Um, nothing's impossible for you and you can get whatever you want just with the power of positive thoughts. Um, which again leaves God totally out of the equation. And, and one of the problems in, in this prosperity theology is God's like a genie in a lamp. And if I rub it with the right amount of prayers and faith friction, the genie pops up and I get what I want, which is really tough. I mean, what's hard for me is people who think that that's who God is, that he's something like that. And he keeps disappointing them. I actually had somebody come forward one time after a, a service and I went back when I was praying with them. And in his heart, he was so horrible. He was a full-grown man, 
horribly disappointed with God because he had bought um, so many lottery tickets and prayed with great faith every time he bought one, every time he chose the numbers, and that God knows how poor I am and how much my family needs this, and I work hard, can't, you know, and he was like, that's what we were there to pray for, is his utter disappointment with God because of this mentality. Um, I have another friend who is now with the Lord. He shot himself uh, because he was in a church that had this idea of word of faith uh, movement that if you just announce it, pronounce it, believe it hard enough, it'll happen for you. And his wife had cancer, horrible cancer, recurring cancer. And um, his church actually said that it was his fault that she wasn't healed because he didn't have enough faith. So after she died, he ended up shooting himself. He felt responsible. So there's such a huge downside to this, and that's when it doesn't work out for you. <laughs> and it all comes down to your inability to believe hard enough. And, and what that means, I mean, like even in a movie like The Polar Express, you guys know that movie, my favorite Christmas movie now. Um, you know, his whole thing is he, he wants to believe, he wants to believe, and, and once he really achieves that, I don't know how he, what switched over in his head, but he could hear the little sleigh bell ring, you know? And I think about that, people in our society actually feel like there's, there's like this switch in me of believing enough, like convincing myself against rationality that something is real. Um, and that's the whole idea of the Polar Express, is he gets this surprise trip to see Santa, and then the bell is still under the tree in the morning, and he can still hear it. I mean, it's this weird idea that we have of what belief is. Yeah. And I think it comes down to the way that we define faith. And you know, like I said earlier this week, faith is so now repackaged to mean like this positive thoughts, this set of positive thoughts. And really the word is trust. And what Jesus invited people to do is trust him. What God invites me to do is trust him. Not to believe in him in my head, but to trust him in my heart. Um, like I do any other love relationship I have, any friendship I have, um, is based on trust, not faith. It's not that I believe like my friend, um, Zag, I have a friend named Zag. <laughs> um, I, it's not that I believe he exists. I trust him. That's the nature of our relationship and that's what God has invited us to. That's what God invited Adam and Eve to do is to trust him. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Trust me, I'll take care of you. And what Satan, tempt, or the serpent tempted Eve with was Maybe you shouldn't trust God. Maybe he's trying to keep something from you. He knows that if you eat of that tree, you'll be like him and he doesn't want that to happen, which is exactly true. But what the serpent was trying to do is questions Eve's unquestioning trust in God. So right from the beginning of our story, the whole point of this is trust. So my wife, if she had cancer, could I trust God for her cancer and not put my positive thinking on the line as faith that she would be healed? The bigger trust is, can I trust God in the midst of cancer? And if he wants to heal her, that's wonderful. My wife doesn't have cancer, by the way. If he wants to heal her, that's wonderful. If he doesn't want to heal her, I have to trust him even more. That's the answer. It's, we've just messed up the idea of faith, horribly messed it up. I wish I could just rewrite 
our versions of the Bible and take out the word faith and put trust because any place that you do that, it, it improves the reading of the text. And they're the same word. And faith was a great word. We just messed it up <laughs> with our power of positive thinking. Okay. The next one is a theology of the poor. And this is a new invention um, within Christianity, a definitely postmodern movement within the church um, that Jesus Christ was committed to the poor, the poor in heart, and that God's blessing can only come to the church through their commitment to release the poor from poverty. That God is somehow with the poor and opposed to the rich, which I could quote verses for you <laughs> that sound like that. That literally, that's what it sounds like. And why should we even have a church in Lake Oswego? Because everybody's rich and doesn't need anything. Um, and God's not for the rich anyway. He's just for the poor. There's a book uh, out uh, on worship, which is why I read it. And I'm not going to say the guy's name because I'm going to disparage the book. Um, who literally said, the theme of his book is, God cannot hear your worship. He doesn't care about your worship. He doesn't care about your heartfelt praise if you're not taking care of the poor. So stop singing your songs. Stop making your, quote, Old Testament sacrifices and go take care of the poor. That's what God's watching for. God can't even hear you. God's ignoring you because you're ignoring the poor. And that is horrible theology. God, like God is mad up in heaven like harumph because there are still poor people around us. God loves the poor, God loves the rich. <laughs> the reason it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God is because he has so much more to let go of than a poor person does. And, uh, but, you know, we have verses that say God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble and that rich people are obviously proud people and poor people are obviously humble people, which is not true. That's just not the fact. I know a lot of arrogant poor people and I know a lot of really, really humble, rich people. So, does anybody have any concern about this? I mean, I'm calling it a theological pitfall in the theology of the poor. Does anybody, like, not like this? What is our responsibility to the poor? Yeah? To treat them like Jesus would treat them, or to treat them as if they were Jesus? What did you mean to treat them like Jesus? Well, like treat, like if, when you said if you treat the least of these, like it might make me, or like Yeah, yeah, you're on the right track. So if you give a cup of cold water to somebody who's thirsty in my name, it's like you've done it to me, like you've, you've taken care of me, which is exactly true. What we're finding out, though, in anybody read a book, When Helping Hurts, which I highly recommend, um, and it's a book helping organizations to understand that their free giveaways and their sponsorship and their making it so people don't have to work anymore is not helping. In our commitment to the poor, we're keeping them poor. In our commitment to relieve poverty, we're actually perpetuating poverty and a welfare state. Our church, our little itty bitty Lake Oswego church, feeds 900 families every weekend in the Portland School District. We're not in the Portland School District. Um, but people in Lake Oswego don't need food over the weekend. A lot of people in Portland do. And we have this school 
back, we call it backpack ministry, and we've compiled thousands of backpacks, and they get filled with food on the weekends of every kid in Portland, well, nine, up to 900. That's all we can afford right now. Um, and we supply all the food for a family for a weekend. The kid takes it home in a backpack on Friday, in addition to her normal backpack. <laughs> so she looks like probably like a burrow on her way home with two backpacks, one filled with canned food. Um, but it takes care of the family, and that, which I love. I love, I think God doesn't want kids to starve. Amen? Amen. But I also think God wants that dad to go to work or that dad to take responsibility for his family. So it's hard for me because I feel like we're doing a really, really good thing, but in a sense, we're also kind of perpetuating um, the difficulty. So you first, okay. Right. You know, but like how how do you talk to people about that? How would you look at those verses and marriage? Like it's like I wouldn't. I would take the verses just like they are. Okay, but how how would you talk to someone who believes it and they're like pointing out those verses? My, the difficulty I have is that the rest of my life with Jesus Christ is conditioned on my response to the poor. I'm 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 convinced that anybody who has the key to the right to a perfect relationship with God through one thing is missing everything else. And that's what this has done, in my opinion, is it's made a church's relationship to the poor the contingency of the church's overall success for the kingdom. Like, if we just take care of the poor, we've done everything the kingdom wants. That's not true. We have not, <clears throat> by taking care of the poor, we have not released the entire power of the kingdom of heaven. That is not true. And when people say this, that's what they're espousing. How would you talk about <clears throat> Yeah, you, you just have to show it to me. You, just, you would just have to show me in scripture where God is conditioned like that. And we're about to talk about blessing and what it means anyway. Because that's another part of our problem, just like we have the, the word faith disappeared. I just pointed to it. It was right here just a minute ago. Um, just like the word faith, we have messed up the word blessing. And I want to get to that in, in just a minute. So this is really important for us because this is your generation. My generation was prosperity gospel. You're welcome. <laughs> your generation is, is theology of the poor. Just be careful. Be advised. These are, as my wise dad says, uh, the enemy doesn't really care which side of the horse you fall off, just so long as you're not on the horse. So if one generation falls off on the prosperity side and the other falls off on the theology of the poor side and we're both missing the big points, uh, the enemy's like, woohoo, as long as I keep him you know, diverted away from actually making Jesus famous, we're good. Well, let me just say one more thing. When we go to our, our ministry in Guatemala, our number one commitment in every community go, that we go into is to work through the local church. We don't go in as the great white, you know, literally people wear scrubs, like we're the great white doctors. I was wearing scrubs and pulling teeth um, and people were calling me doctor. I'm like, yeah, but not that kind of doctor. Um, I'm not a doctor of teeth pulling. Um, but we go in like that, and our whole point is to keep pointing to their pastors and their local church, because they live there. Right? They're the ones responsible for the kingdom of heaven in, in their community. So what we can do is help make the realities of the kingdom of heaven present in their community through that local church. So when people say, what organization are you here with? We literally say, we're here with the church. This church right here. And Tomas is our boss. That's why we're here. 
And that's, we won't do it any other way. Because we don't want to be the great white saviors. That's messed up. Yeah. So let's talk about some, we have two um, important words of redemption. The first one is value. Where does value lie and how do we measure value? And the difficulty is we, we belong in a culture that is shaped in a long history of your value is in how hard you work. Your value is when, in what you have to offer. This is the Puritan work ethic. That your value to this society is determined by what you have to offer the society. <laughs> so if you are an artist in an agrarian culture, your value is questionable, right? <laughs> like if you're an artist, a songwriter, and what you do really well is make beautiful songs, but what everybody needs is help picking the corn, you are of limited value in your society. So the Puritan work ethic created this pragmatic understanding of value that we've had to work against for a long time. Is there value in art, in an artistry, for a society? Absolutely. Is it the same value as picking corn in an agrarian society? Probably. But we weren't raised that way. We were raised with this Puritan work ethic that uh, you are what you're worth in terms of a strong back. Secondly, the move from a capitalistic culture to a post-capitalistic culture is a move back towards what is valued most. Instead of how much I can have in a consumeristic mentality is the real value on what I can give, on what I can offer, on what lasts the longest. So can I raise other people up, like let's talk about fair and direct trade, can I raise other people up by giving them a true value directly for what they have produced um, versus just giving them money? Like wouldn't it be smarter for me to give a micro loan and show them how to make their own money? Which you have to be super careful about. One of our first attempts going to Guatemala is there's a ton of widows in these communities. I, you probably don't know much about the history. I didn't know anything about the history of Guatemala until we started going. But there was like a, 20, a two decades long civil war in Guatemala that just decimated the impoverished areas. Rich people never die in huge wars, <laughs> okay? It's poor people that die. And so there's widows everywhere in these little communities. Like two thirds of the population are widows. So what are they gonna do? They're still raising kids. They're trying to make a living in a male-dominated society. Latin society is male-dominated society. So what are they going to do? So we went and we built them chicken coops. And we gave them each seven chickens with the explicit <laughs> you know, guidelines, don't eat your chickens. No matter how hungry you get, this is your production line. They make eggs, you sell the eggs, and you buy chicken but don't eat these chickens. And we try to be so careful because we built like dozens of these coops and gave them hundreds of chickens that we didn't take with us. Like we bought them there and, and transported them out there, which was a funny looking van, I'm telling you, full of, of chickens. Um, and we came back in a year and the coops are all empty. Literally every coop is empty. It's like, what happened? Oh, the chickens were delicious. And literally, we were trying to help them, and we figured out that's just not going to work. We've had several attempts at things that just didn't work. We built them latrines, um, composting, dry compost latrines, above ground 
um, outhouses that were sealed, and as long as you used them only with, uh, be crude, number two, and you didn't number one in them, the number two would compost and you could spread it in your garden as fertilizer. But if you number one and kept it wet, it would never compost. And they, they're expensive and they're a lot of work to build. I mean, you can imagine, because you build two next to each other on one pedestal, and you use this one, and then you lock it for six months while, every, while everything composts, and they're supposed to use this one. We found out they weren't using them at all. They called them the American toilets, because <laughs> we liked them. <laughs> we liked using them. Uh, so they called them the American toilets, and they thought we built them so when we came, we would have a place to go, Aww. literally. But that's not why they weren't using them. They weren't using them because of the um, embarrassment of walking into it. Because if you're just walking out into the forest, nobody knows exactly what you're going to do. If you just walk out into the jungle. So, oh, look, there goes Herbie walking out into the jungle. Nobody's like, what is Herbie up to? But if you walk into one of these, everybody knows exactly what you're doing. Which in our society is normal. We know exactly what we're doing if we walk into one of these rooms. In their society, it was not normal and not welcomed. Hence, they became the American toilets. So, you know, when you think about this, you still have to be so wise as to how you're going to go about it and make sure that they understand, these widows understand, you know, so give them 14 chickens. They were only like two bucks a piece, right? Give them 14 chickens and say you can eat half. But don't eat them all, you know, or... Eat the wings, but leave the rest. No, I'm kidding. Um, but what we have to understand is in the economy of, of kingdom, value is in what lasts forever. Not in what's in your storage unit. Not in how expensive your stuff is. That's not where value lies. Value lies in what lasts forever. And what lasts forever is people. That's exactly right. People last forever, and that's where we should be putting our time and our priority and our interest, especially in church, especially in the kingdom of God. If you have money that's not translating into transformed lives, change the money. We've had this issue. We, you know, we have a nice property and like nine acres and beautiful buildings. and like It's not big. It's not fancy. I'm not part of a big fancy church or anything like that, but it's worth a lot because of where it is. And you know, we have our financial struggles just like every other institution. And a couple years ago, I, I actually said, let's just sell this. We don't need this to do what we do. We could use a school. We could use, in the summertime, we could use a park. We just don't need this. We have like 400 people that need to get together once a week. And we pay for this huge building that basically gets filled up once a week. Like, let's just get rid of it and, and do something different. And they're like, no, we wouldn't have a church then. I'm like, yeah, you don't get it at all. I just saw a little soldier up there on the projector protecting the projector. <laughs> the next thing is blessing and the nature of blessing and how blessing happens in our life. <clears throat> and I'm trying to get us away from the idea that God owes us blessing or that God, you know, foremost what he wants in, in your life is to bless you. That is not God's primary goal in your life. It's not to fulfill you. It's not to reward you. It's not to better your existence. God's whole goal in your life is your constant transformation into the image of Christ. And that is the blessing of my relationship with God, is that transformation. 
So the idea of blessing, <coughs> excuse me, as we have it in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, is satisfaction, fulfillment, or even good luck. The actual word for blessing is what somebody would say to somebody else if they were saying, I'm going to go try to do this. They'd say, well, good luck, which means literally, I hope it works out for you. We're not actually wishing for a four-leaf clover in your life. We're hoping it works out for you. And that's what this idea of blessing is, is you still work and you still do what you have to do. And that's where satisfaction, fulfillment come from. It's not, you know, whoa, that was lucky. Um, it doesn't come from materialistic pursuits. Blessing comes from God. And it comes God's way. It comes in God's timing. You don't earn it. You don't pray it into your life. You don't positive think it into your life. When God does it, he wants you to go, whoa, thank you. Now it's about time. <clears throat> God wants you to trust him, first and foremost. And he's not going to reward you and dangle a carrot in front of you to trust him. That's prosperity theology. That's not how he does it. He just wants you to trust him, period. Trust him with the blessing. Trust him for how it works out. So in your notes, I put um, the Beatitudes because they have been so horribly misinterpreted. One of Norman Vincent Peale's protégés was a guy that put together, you probably know him best for the church, the Crystal Cathedral. Down in California, there's this big glass castle church. And this guy put this church together. He, before that, he had a drive-in church down in um, Garden Grove, California. And literally, they had a lawn, and they had like the little stanchions, like a drive-in theater. Like, now you just tune in on your radio, but they used to have a little speaker that you would pick up and put in your car. And literally, people would come to drive-in church. Um, yeah, it was very, very interesting. And he wrote a book called The Be Happy Attitudes. Wait, look at these attitudes. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, the insulted, all of these are the blessed ones. These are not about be happy attitudes. And it's been so twisted and messed up and twerked around, twerked, sorry, um, that's messed up, <laughs> that it's lost its sense of what it really, really means to be blessed. Blessing is something God does when God wants to. That's the blessing. You didn't earn it. You were just doing your life, the hard parts of your life, according to the Beatitudes. To wait for God's blessing, to trust him in the midst of hard times and let him take care of the goodnesses in your life. And he will. He will. Not because you have a certain amount of faith. Not because you've lived a certain amount of righteousness. Not because you've eliminated sin from your life. He does it when he wants to do it. And it brings satisfaction and fulfillment. And so, God, that's what we pray for. Your blessing in our lives. A recognition that you are with us. Especially when times are hard. And we are in want. And we are in need. And we feel weak. And we feel vulnerable. Help us to trust you in those times, not to erase those feelings, but to just trust you that you are with us and that you're guarding and you're protecting and that in your time, in your way, by your sovereignty, you will bless us. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.